So I, I had an interview with, with the Pentagon, so the Department of um, Defense, um, to use my engineering background, but also like all my passions about like, you know, getting this president, um, his, his, his platform out there. So I'd interview over the phone and I, I, and I was on a bus. I remember I was on a bus from uh, DC to, I don't know, to New York City or something. And so I had kind of crappy phone coverage and there's people like shushing me the whole time, but it went really well. Like we really connected over the phone. We really talked and really understood me. He's like, I want to hire you. This is Seeking Startups, a show that gives you an inside look into the minds of ambitious people who are trying to change the world. Learn about what they're building, their personal stories, and invest in the founders you believe in. Now with equity crowdfunding, anyone can invest in early stage private startups. If you're searching for entertaining, educational, and inspirational content about startup investing, this show is for you. I'm your host, Maxim Davis, and today on Seeking Startups, we have Arnob, the co-founder of ZomoFit. ZomoFit is a digital platform that enables fitness creators to effortlessly provide virtual fitness classes to their clients. In 2020, Arnob felt firsthand the challenges of working out virtually, and even though he had the idea for a while, he knew that this was the right time to build something better. So he quit his job and started ZomoFit. Now, with previous founding experience, a team of six, and content creators using and paying for the service, Arna believes he has what it takes to make ZomoFit a dominant player in the virtual fitness arena. Before we get started, I just want to thank all of my fellow podcast subscribers. Thank you for returning week after week listening to the show. I really appreciate all of your support. If you would like to help grow this podcast, please feel free to leave a rating and a review and share the show with your family and friends. Hey, I would like to quickly say that everything you hear in this podcast is only for informational and entertainment purposes. This is not financial advice and I'm not endorsing this company. Please do proper due diligence before investing in any startup. Okay, now let's get started. Arnab, well, thank you for being on the podcast. I am looking forward to getting um, to know more information about ZomoFit. Before we start uh, getting into your story, let's talk about the company itself. And so can you just describe what ZomoFit is? Sure. Well, first, thanks for having me on this on the show. And uh, yeah, to describe what ZomoFit does, well, I guess I have to give you some quick backstory about you know why, why we're doing this. Um, so personally, what I found during the pandemic is virtual workouts felt very personal um, and kind of cold. It's just like a, watching a video um, and it got really old fast. Um, and what we're seeing in the market is that virtual workouts is going to be the future, just like working out, working from home, like at, at you know for your business and whatnot. And so it's going to be a sixty billion dollar um, space in the next um, five years. So that means right now it's an eight billion dollar period. It's going to go to balloon up to a, a sixty billion dollar period very soon. Um, and the issue that we're seeing is all these like small mom pop gyms or trainers. Um, they don't have the the tools or the tech to actually start running virtual classes. What they actually started doing was they were running Zoom classes um, during the during the pandemic, and they continue to do that because because of the demand. Even large companies like Barry's Bootcamp, um, they were actually running Zoom classes for their members, uh, which is crazy that even such a big organization didn't have the tools to do it. So this is the same trend we're seeing from retail, where a lot of retail is going online, commerce is going online, the small mom pops really need to get on Etsy or Amazon and whatnot to actually compete. And so 
what we've done here is we've made a tool, um, an app that allows any fitness professional um, to create a virtual gym, to live stream and monetize their their work. And we've simplified the whole process. Um, so instead of having a large studio with millions of dollars of equipment, you just have your phone app on a tripod uh, with great lighting and you can live stream and, and um, make pretty good money. Uh, so if you have, for example, 100 customers, um, that are being a hundred dollars a month. That's, you can make 120 K a year. Um, and that's generally what a lot of these trainers have, um, and virtual gyms have, they have about a hundred and they're charging more than a hundred dollars per month for, for their membership. So there's 370,000 of these guys out there. Um, and so our, our goal in the next five years is to kind of monopolize this market and get these trainers onto, uh, our, our software and really help these creators, these fitness creators to start creating really great content and um, make it very human, very personal um, and get the US and the rest of the world kind of active. Wow. Interesting. Can you talk more about like, how does the whole platform work for the, for the content creator? It's a combination of Patreon, uh, Shopify and Instagram live, but it's specifically built for fitness creators. Uh, so the way it works is a fitness creator signs up for a service on, on their phone uh, app and uh, they get their own website, which they send to their customers. Um, and they can also connect it into their Instagram uh, bio. So it brings folks in. Um, and our app lets them create masterclasses or courses um, and also live stream classes that are directly kind of broadcasted um, onto these onto our web pages. And so any customer of theirs can book and pay for a class um, and uh, join a class on any web browser. So it could be a TV, it could be a phone, it could be a laptop, whatever they can join and consume on a browser. I know you mentioned multiple like potential customers. You talked about smaller gyms, mom and pop gyms. You also talked about like that creator. And so who's your first, I guess, customer that you're trying to target right off the bat? So, you know, to figure that out, I went through a lot of uh, user testing and kind of um, canvassing uh, gyms. And so what I actually did initially was I um, scraped ClassPass's list of, of uh, gyms in New York City area and just emailed them and surveyed them and really got to know them. Um, and what I discovered is the bigger gyms that have legacy software, um, they're, they're a longer sales cycle, they're slower to adapt. And what I did see during the pandemic is a lot of their head kind of um, head trainers would leave the, the, these gyms and use their Instagram following to start monetizing that, um, which is happening at a huge rapid scale um, across the world. Um, so to answer your question, it, it's a lot of these trainers that have left big box gyms or gym, gyms in, in, in general to go virtual and start their own following and start their own, vir own virtual gyms uh, uh, and, and make their own money twice as much as they're making at their big box gyms. I'm curious about that um, customer discovery that you did. Can you talk more about some of the things that you did? What were they saying? And then what made them excited, I guess, about your platform? Yeah. So full disclosure, when we first started, like um, it was during the height of the pandemic and these gyms were super desperate. And so they didn't know what the heck they were going to do in terms of their business. Um, and so I, I think it was just really good timing. And so what I saw other folks were doing, other companies were doing, um, and some of them have not shut down, is they just kind of picked a path and just did it. Instead of what I did is I, I, I kind of really interviewed them and every week would have about five different um, interviews with one of these you know, potential customers and ask them, 
what do you want me to build and what would you be willing to pay for? Um, and over, over, over and over again, what I found was the live stream part was a pain in the ass because it used Zoom and then send the Zoom link over to their customers and then they'll join late and then you Zoom bombers and it just, it was a, it was a bad experience. Right. And they're competing against Peloton. So imagine a Peloton experience, which is like high quality video. It's like a sexy experience in like a club, it feels like. And then you're on a Zoom call, which is usually for work. Um, it's not comparable. Um, so the live stream part is the first part that I built. And the first like alpha build that I built was really, really bad. Um, and there'd be issues, but it was better than Zoom in some ways and worse in other ways. Mm. So I figured out, okay, so if we make this live stream part really good and make it really easy, um, then we can kind of, we can, we can solve some problems. And so it wasn't very direct in terms of like, like we, we got insights from customers, for example, that a lot of their, a lot of customers have really crappy laptops. Um, a lot of these virtual gym trainers or creators have really bad laptops and bad cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, so it frees up during the middle of a, of a class or the camera quality is really poor. So that's why we switched over to mobile app and kind of understood that the mobile app, a lot of these guys have really good phones that can record like 80 to 90% of these like, like high quality, um, like DSLR cameras uh, to record a great session. So we, so we made it into mobile app, kept going with live streaming. And then from the their customers, what we saw in class was um, and I felt myself was that in the class itself, like it's hard to follow along with a trainer that's jumping around, doing jumping jumps and burpees. Like you don't know what they're saying half the time because they're they're like out of breath. All right. Um, and, and so by the time you catch up, you're always like behind. And it's demotivating to do that, but also it's just like not a great workout to to, to kind of have that. So the next thing we did, did is add kind of uh, overlays onto the screen. So we made we made kind of uh, like like a video game. You get you know your your health. You get how many bullets you have left if you're playing Quake or whatever those games are. Um, so we added the overlays with the with the current workout you're doing. Uh, how much time is left in the workout? What the current exercise is, is and how much time is left? And that was heavily inspired by what YouTubers were, were doing um, with post processing. But our system automatically adds um, these overlays in, in live in real time, which is pretty cool. So it seems like you've had a lot of iterations, right? You've kind of figured out a problem, solved that, and then tried to figure out the next thing. And so what was the last customer base that you talked to? And then what were they saying in this new time when the pandemic is over and gyms are open? Yeah, so so there's been a lot of iterations. So we started like a year and a half ago, a little bit more than that. Um, and so there's been a lot of iterations. Like at some point, uh, trainers wanted music built into it. So we worked with Spotify directly that music hmm. uh, that, that's shared along all the participants. Um, and so more recently, like a big thing that, that customers want, uh, and users want is recording, um, recording their classes and making like live classes feel like, uh, sorry, making recorded classes or master classes feel like they were, they're live. That's kind of hard to do. Um, so we kind of have been working on that, uh, making sure that, that, that is really easy to use. Um, and this, the other kind of most highly demanded thing was community, uh, making sure that um, the subscribers and members of the virtual gym, they can talk to each other, they can interact, um, you know, before the workout, afterwards, give feedback, um, and also see their performance um, in terms of like how they did in the class. Um, so there's a lot of parts to that. So there's one tracking, tracking how well customers are doing in the class. So we're actually using computer vision and using a typical, a normal uh, camera uh, with skeletal tracking, you can actually track 
how many calories people are burning within the class in real time, uh, which is pretty advanced. We built that part of it also. Yeah, that's cool. Thank you. Um, and then also we have like a Patreon-like kind of newsfeed with uh, comments on each each one of the posts that uh, uh, that a virtual reader makes or fitness reader makes. How do you make money from this? What is the what is the monetization um, strategy? Yeah, so there's two ways we make money, um, and so we we charge thirty dollars a month uh, for creators, and on top of that, we charge their customers a ten percent booking fee. So when they book a class, like for example, if it's a ten dollar class, we charge a dollar for 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 booking the class itself. So with that type of monetization strategy, what has the traction been like? So um, do you have paying customers? Are you in beta? What stage are you at right now? Yeah, so we have paying customers and we are starting to uh, generate pretty good, uh, decent revenue. So the metric that, that we used before was kind of to get 10 super users. Now we've got 25 of these guys kind of um, using this every day um, and generating pretty decent revenue. The super user, is that the fitness creator or is that the user of the like platform? What we call super users are the creators themselves. So the fitness creators, we've got 25 of those folks. And then we've got their customers. On average, they've got 10 to to 20 to 30 customers on, on top of that. So they're also part of the ecosystem. So we've got over a thousand using daily, like daily active users. Okay, over a thousand. And how sticky are the super users? And then you know how sticky their clients are in staying on their platform? Yeah, um, it's the stickiest experience that um, that these guys have especially compared to what their workflow was before. So they would have, they would have to chase after them for Venmo payments. Um, mm. uh, they would use Zoom for, for workouts and people would be late or there'd be Zoom bombers that messes up the whole experience there. Um, and then the scheduling part, the booking part, like that's also important because people often miss classes. Um, so there's a lot of issues on all those different parts where people kind of fall through the cracks. Um, that's one big part. Um, other part is like um, the community aspect of things that, that we're kind of working on and building up and then getting the data from, from, uh, from people working out to like taking that data and, and giving people data just like Peloton does or, or something like the Apple Watch does. It inspires you, motivates you when you have data that shows that you've burned X amount of calories this day um, and it pains you to kind of keep coming back. Um, so our, I'd say our stickiness isn't Peloton level because Peloton... Um, has really high sticky factor. Um, it's because they they have this hardware piece and they've been working at this for 10, 15 years in terms of like getting their people uh, building up the community. Right. So we'll get there at some point. But what's great about our our classes is they're smaller than Peloton. Peloton has up to like 10,000 people in a class. Um, but we have smaller classes with two-way video. So if your fitness creator sees what you're doing and in real time says, hey, Arnab, step it up or, hey, make sure your form's right. That two-way like uh, feedback loop is a lot better than these bigger box kind of uh, Pelotons and, and Apple Fitness out there. Um, that sticking factor is significantly higher than what I'm seeing with Apple also. So what is the, you think, the killer feature for the, the customers on the, the client side? For end users, it's really the ease of use. Like um, what end users are used to, consumers of, the, of these fitness classes, is like frictionless process of um, joining a class or paying for a class. They're used to like opening up an app and joining a class. Um, that's what we've been trying to replicate over and over again. Um, and the great thing is since we're live, um, people have no excuse to like not go to a class. If they, if they miss a class, like it's on them. Um, with on-demand on-demand classes or Peloton type classes that, are, um, that you can join, there's so many options. 
people often miss classes and make an excuse. I do that myself all the time. But if you have a scheduled class and you you schedule it beforehand, you have no reason to kind of miss it. Um, and that is a huge stickiness factor, accountability factor. And consumers do like that a lot. And so you mentioned you have these super users, you have 25 of them, and then you have a thousand um, clients that follow these super users uh, and use their platform. Um, how did you get those first customers? So just like I, I mentioned, like before I even started the company, I scraped um, uh, ClassPass's list of gyms in New York City. And so I hit them up and started building relationships that way. Um, and through networking and, and kind of, you know, understanding these people, we've, we've built up relationships and found these, these customers. Um, also, like um, we're, we're seeing a lot of uh, like referrals. It's another way we're getting more users. Um, and um, we also see that a certain demographic of Instagram users uh, also become really good creators um, because uh, let's say they have like 2,000 to about about 100,000 followers. They're, they're well fit for a platform. Right. So it sounds like in the early days, you know, you were kind of hustling to get those few customers. But what's the the strategy going forward? So what's that distribution model that you're planning to try to scale this company? So it's a lot of partnerships. So partnering with large organizations that have a lot of trainers that are being underserved. Um, so it's it's uh, certifications, uh, folks out there, companies out there. Um, there's 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 hardware manufacturers out there also. Um, so those are those are two kind of big partnerships that we're working on. Um, also, there's um, uh, we we are running Facebook ads to kind of warm it up and understand our, our demographics. So uh, Facebook ads is a great way to kind of uh, get some leads in. Um, and we also have like email campaigns that we send out to the partners. Um, and we have pretty good, great um, open rates. Um, and that's going to scale pretty well too. When we come back, you'll get to hear why Arna believes virtual fitness is the future. But before that, here's how you can personally invest in Zomo Fit. ZomoFit is currently raising up to $1.07 million at a $12 million valuation cap on WeFunder. After the early bird terms expire, the valuation cap will be raised to $14 million. The current minimum investment amount is $100 per investor. Funding is currently open but is scheduled to close on April 30th, 2023. But if they hit their maximum funding limit before then, you'll be directed to their waitlist. If you're interested in getting more information, check the show notes below where you can find a link to their funding page. I'm curious, you said like timing was right whenever you started this company. And that makes a lot of sense that in the pandemic, everyone was home. They were working from home. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we are in a reopening phase right now where people are going out. What convinces you that, you know, this is the future? Like what what can you point to that, you know, definitively says like, this has an, a real opportunity when everything is open and people want to go out. Sure. Um, so the numbers tell the whole story. Like the, the market data shows that this is going to seven X in the next five years. Um, and that's, that's like every market analysis is like showing that data over and over again. Um, that's one part. The second part is like, um, that, you know, trainers that we talk to, they're still saying that like a lot of their customers are not going back to the gym. Um, and that the reason is a lot of people working from home, so they're doing their their businesses from home. They're they're working from home, so it just it's just like easy extension of like just working out at home. Um, and that's not to say that we don't support like hybrid. Like obviously we do support hybrid. Like one of our super users actually has our system set up in her studio, so she runs a class live 
but also has people live streaming, like uh, joining um, over a live stream. Um, and the thing is that working out is not like you do it one day. You, should, you have to do it like four or five days a week to actually see results. Um, and so maybe you spend two days going outside, playing soccer, whatever you want to do, being active. Another two days going online and doing some kind of workout. Um, it's it's not about it's not about it's not a binary choice of doing one or the other. It's it's a combination of stuff. So when you look at the competitive landscape, um, are there other companies doing what you're doing? Yeah, there's a few companies that are out there that have raised some good money. So one of the ones of note are Talentac. They raised some pretty good money. I think it was seventeen million dollars, and they shut down a couple of months ago. Oh, really? And so what they were doing was they were essentially make they were like the Wix um, or Square Space for for fitness uh, fitness uh, folks. Um, I think they were giving just one part solution, and also um, you know they they didn't really have a holistic kind of solution. Um, so that was an issue there that I've seen. Uh, one of the big, bigger competitors. Other one was Moxie.xyz, and I think they were doing something in, in pretty interesting. Um, but the issue is they're biting off more than they can chew. Um, they're doing a marketplace play, meaning that they are bringing consumers in and users, plus they're being bringing in um, uh, business creators. That's just it's just too much for a startup to kind of handle. So they should have picked their battles and kind of focused on what makes these creators better. Um, and I still haven't seen any creators, any any fitness platforms out there that have done a good job. I think one of the uh, ones I think that are also doing something interesting is Arcada. Um, you know, I think they're also still focused on booking and um, and scheduling, which is interesting. This is needed, but it's not solving all the different problems. Like live streaming is still dif- really difficult for these guys. If you're a non-tech person, like, like for example, my mom, um, if, if I give my mom my, our app, she'll be able to use it. She'll be able to create, make money off, off the application. Um, but if you give her something like like Zoom and then be like, hey, figure this out, she will be screwed. <laughs> she, uh, so so that's really the tech understanding of a lot of our customers. They're not very techy, but they're really great at creating content. Um, and so that's a mistake I think a lot of competitors are making. But I think uh, this market is big enough for a lot of large companies to, to play it. And before we finish up the company details, I'm curious about how far do you want to take this? You know, um, what what is your mission? What is your goal um, for for ZomoFit? I want to help as many creators as possible. Um, I am a like a I love, I love working out, so I'm a great uh, I'm a big consumer of um, virtual fitness, and so my goal is to help as many of these virtual creators, uh, fitness creators out there as possible. And our goal in the next five years is to have ten thousand of these super users on board and um, and across the world to be the de facto software that people use to um, live stream or, or monetize their their virtual gyms and create their virtual gyms. And I, I think we'll be able to achieve that. I believe we can achieve that because we are the, really like one of the cutting edge, bleeding edge kind of tech companies in the space. Most of them are kind of legacy. Um, so I think we can definitely achieve that. And if we do achieve the 10,000 kind of creators, this makes us into a billion dollar company. Perfect. Well, I appreciate that um, insight. I would like to now get into your story because I think you did mention why you're creating this company, but let's go further back. Let's go all the way back to your childhood and let's get to birth. learn. <laughs> yeah, from birth. <laughs> let's get to learn more about you and, um, you know, what makes you you basically. Uh, and so I'm curious, can you talk a little bit about your childhood experience? What was that like? Yeah. Um, I mean, so I've always been a tinkerer. I've been kind of like a nerd. Um, 
I've always take stuff apart. Um, uh, let's say radios or TVs or computer or build computers. I've always been a tinker, um, kind of engineering in my DNA. So that's always what I've been doing um, since, since since I started. Also, I had another part of me that was like I I enjoyed kind of hustling and trying to make money. Um, so I tried to kind of run online businesses. So one of them of note, like my brother and I put together this consulting company mm-hmm. um, for helping like for helping financial institutions to pick locations of their of their like next locations of their uh, of their brick and mortar stores. So we started getting some contracts, but we were like. I was like 12 years old. My brother was like 18 or like, we can't handle this. We can't sued. So we had to shut that down. Um, but we got some interesting like uh, um, stuff there that, that failed, but it led to me kind of using my hackery kind of background and, and loving to build stuff. Um, and my like love for building businesses and helping people. Um, that's always, that's always been part of my background. Of course, being Indian, being brown, like my my parents kind of pushed me to, towards being a doctor, but I'm glad I didn't become a doctor. I would have been a terrible doctor. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm curious because your dad specifically, he was an engineer and your mom worked at a bank. Um, and you said that you were a tinker, but you also started, you know, started businesses. Do you think their backgrounds influenced you and in, in, in what your interests kind of became? Yeah. Um, so being like a first generation uh, born in the U.S., I was born in the U.S., born in Boston. Um, like, you see your parents kind of struggling because um, my parents came to the U.S. Uh, with education, but not very much money in their pockets, like very little money in their pockets. Because my dad, when he like went to college, he would sleep in like a restaurant floor wow. to go to class because he couldn't afford somewhere to stay. Um, so, so that kind of mentality of like making the most of what you have um, and um, and that hustle, like. I think first generation sees their parents going through a lot of pain um, that you don't realize at the time. Um, uh, that that kind of influences your decision making, um, and I don't think my my daughter is going to have the same kind of like seeing us struggle as much. Um, so she she'll probably be more privileged than I was. Um, so that I think I think that upbringing of my my parents kind of struggling may, changes your mindset. So, so you see a lot of like first generations kind of like working harder, like really hustling. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, with with immigrants, especially, um, in terms of my parents' background, so my my dad's an engineer. He's 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 very much like the way I think, very pragmatic, um, and so he always wanted to start his own business and kind of hustle. He he, I remember at some point he started selling like air filters because he's like, oh, I want to make this into business. Sell these air filters, um, there's water filters, but he didn't have the the luxury that that I did growing up in terms of like being able to learn things and start businesses. Like he just had to, he was in survival mode. I see. He didn't have the opportunity to spend any capital on starting businesses. So I think I, I learned those lessons and I saw my, my parents struggle and then kind of took that. I was like, look, I have the opportunity to do something pretty cool. Um, let's do it. Um, like Richard Branson says, screw it, let's do it. <laughs> That's what I live by usually. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like the opportunities that they kind of, you know, created for you allowed you to to try these different things, to tinker with things, to not have to worry about putting food on the table, right? You could you could kind of let your mind wander in, and, which is really fascinating. Um, I know you mentioned one of those online business, the consulting business. Did you do anything else? Yeah, um, I I tried a bunch of different things. I'm trying to recall which ones are actually like, like looking back, what actually thought was successful. I mean, I thought a lot of them were kind of like bullshitty businesses, but that's what you do when you're young. You don't know any better. 
you know, I did try to start like a computer building business. Like, I'd have, like my friends would hire me to build computers for them because that's what I was good at. Um, or I'd sell like when, when Napster was kind of big back then, Napster and um, um, like downloading MP3s and then converting it to CDs. I'd burn CDs for people, make mixes for people, and sell it to people. Um, there's another thing I'd do, like because I, I had a CD burner. I was lucky enough to have a CD burner back in the day, and but I had a slow internet connection, so it'd take me like days to download an album worth of music. <laughs> <laughs> so so I'd find out some ways to hustle and make money, right. um, make it a business. But they were not scalable. They were not anything that's like that. That was amazing. Right, right. You said you you were you know kind of tinkering around. Did you use like any like books, or were you just kind of doing it and figuring it out as you were going? Like, how did education kind of play a role into this whole uh, experimental process for you? So, so a lot of the way that I learned um, is is by doing and failing. Um, I fail a lot, so um, uh, so in in my youth, like I was not a big like I, I love reading, but but I was not a big like sitting in classroom and learning. I just I found it really boring. Maybe I had ADD. I, I don't really know, but um, I, I would, I would just learn by taking stuff apart, getting electrocuted sometimes, blowing stuff up. I, I've blown up like things with the batteries are dangerous. Don't overcharge things with batteries because they do blow up often and catch, catch fires. So I've blown up a lot of things, um, uh, broken things, uh, and I just kind of learned from tinkering. I think that's the best way to learn. Just just get immerse yourself. Same with language. Same with like any other learning. Just immersion is is the best way because you have to know the basics plus more advanced things and your, your learning is more practical in terms of like getting stuff done. Right. You said you didn't like to, you know, sit in class and kind of learn, yeah. but um, you did mention like your parents kind of had an expectation, right? Of you of becoming a doctor and, you know, that's important that you do well in school. And so yeah. how was it like for you? Yeah. I mean, I was always like, um, like good at like uh, mathy stuff or, or anything related to engineering or practical stuff. But I wasn't a very good student um, because, like, I my mind was always somewhere else, um, and I did enjoy sports. I mean, I was, I was pretty decent at wrestling, uh, but but I was not really focused as a student. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. So, given that, I was like, why am I working hard to to get good grades and spend all the time? I'd rather like spend time on my computer, build a computer, or like or hustle. That was like my mentality. Right, right. And so, but I did go to college, um, like. Because I have brown parents, if I didn't go to college, I would have been like disowned. Um, so I did go to college um, uh, to went to Syracuse University, okay. and I did, did engineering, which is a pretty good thing to, to focus on. Um, but once again, I I didn't love sitting and learning from engineers that really didn't make it. Like they were just hmm. what I've learned over and over again, and I've seen like other other um, influential people say is like people that have become professors have not really like done anything with their own careers. Um, it's it's hard to find teachers or professors that have, have done amazing things and then come teach about it. Uh, it's rare. Like Stanford some has some does like that at MIT, but it's pretty rare to see that. Um, so I, I didn't do great in college either. <laughs> um, I was I was too busy like learning about life mm. and getting drunk and, and uh, realizing that uh, uh, there's another opposite sex. So that was, that was just what, <laughs> what I did in college also. But it was more about life learnings and also figuring out what I want to do with my life and, and my um, like career. So that, that was good. Uh, and I think engineering is a great background for anything you do in the future. Hey, I just wanted to share an update about the Seeking Startups Roadmap. Phase one was to create more transparency in the equity crowdfunding market by providing you with exclusive founder interviews. With phase one moving at full speed, 
I'd like to announce phase two, the Seeking Startups community, a community built by the crowd for the crowd, a place where you can learn, share due diligence, and connect with other equity crowdfunding investors. I would love for you to be a part of this exciting new group, so I welcome you to join today. Click the link in the description below to get started, and I'll see you there. So eventually you moved on from Syracuse and what was the next thing that you started working on? Yeah. So, so one of my friends then suggested like, like, Hey, come to Ohio to work for then Senator Obama. I was like, it it sounds cool. Like I'm not into politics, Mm -hmm. but it'd be really cool to work like for the first black president. But I was like, this is a long shot. This is never going to (laughs) happen. Like this guy's not going to win. He's got like, he's, he's black and that's the U S is not ready for a black president or minority president. Um, he's got a funny name, like, like Osama bin Laden screwing stuff up and he's got like a weird name. Like it's not gonna, it's not gonna happen. But I was like, this would be interesting. This, this will like stretch my mind in a different direction and teach me things that I haven't done before. Like I was always doing engineering stuff. And so I was kind of antisocial. Like what happens when you do a lot of engineering work, uh, generally is that you just are stuck in a lab or just heads down kind of, kind of doing different things. What's missing in curriculum in college in terms of engineering is you don't do enough like practical work. You don't talk to other human beings. Communication is like nil for a lot of engineers. Um, so I was like, screw, it, let's do it. Let's let's go to Ohio, which which was in the middle of nowhere, um, middle of nowhere, Ohio, and and be a field organizer for then Senator Obama. Wow. To to um, to kind of understand what people are thinking um, and get them to learn more about Obama um, and what his platform stood for. Um, and what was cool about, you know, my, my kid as a field organizer is that, um, it was the first, like first high tech kind of experience for a campaign. Most campaigns were just like knocking on doors and just like asking people to vote, remember to vote. If you want more information, here's more information about our candidate. But instead, like they had a very sophisticated text build. So they would actually know like on a map, who's likely to actually be a democratic voter, who's likely to, who's undecided. Um, so we had pretty good positioning in areas that would go after um, based on this data. It was the first like data-driven kind of campaign, which is very, 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 very effective. Obviously, we won because of that. Obviously, the ultimate high was Obama winning. So can you talk to me about that experience, being a part of that? Uh, what was it like? So I was kind of like a lowly, lowly paid, um, in air quotes, lowly kind of paid field organizer. organizer. Um, there was like a thousand of us or more across, kind of across the U.S. Um, uh, so I was paid and, and it was great, um, not paid very much. Um, but when you won, it was awesome. It was great. Um, but I was like, what's next? Like, right. it's just going to be in office and, and, and sworn in January. What's what's next for me? Um, so I was like, well, Adela's work, um, it'd be cool to kind of use my engineering background and kind of my passion about like this platform. Um and kind of mix it together into a job. So what I did, what most people didn't do, is I hustled like, like because I had contacts for like people that are high up in the in the in the campaign, um, that are really high up in the campaign that that end up working in the White House. So I started like cold emailing people, cold calling people <laughs> to to actually get a job from the administration, which is really weird. And even like my mom was like, "What are you doing, dude? You're not going to get a job from the White House. Um, we're not going to get a job. Like you, you're like a twenty three-year-old dude um, with no experience, there's, there's no way you're going to get a job. So that, I use that as a challenge. Mm-hmm. Like I'm pushing harder to actually like just canvas and, and get my foot in the door. 
Um, so I guess like that worked because I started getting interviews from the White House wow. to, 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 you know, I was, I was like freaking out. I was like, I was 23. I was like, shit, you know how old I am, <laughs> but, but it worked out. So the way it works for, for, um, a new president, they come in and they have political appointees and that includes like cabinet level, uh, people like mm-hmm. the department of interior or department of energy. Like those guys are political appointees okay. and they also have their staff that is appointed. Um, so it's about like. 2000 of these guys that are, that are, um, that are hired on for a new administration. Every president kind of gets that, um, in the different departments. And so, so I, I had an interview with, with the Pentagon. So the department of, um, defense, wow. um, to use my engineering background, but also like all my passions about like, you know, getting this president, um, his, his, his cap platform out there. So I had an interview over the phone and I, I, and I was on a bus. I remember I was on a bus from uh, DC to, I don't know, to New York city or something. And so I had kind of crappy phone coverage and there's people like shushing me the whole time, but it went really well. Like we really connected over the phone. We really talked and really understood me. He's like, I want to hire you. So he hired me on the phone on, wow. on the spot without meeting me. And I was like, what the hell? Okay. This sounds good. So, you know, so he's like, when can you come in so we can get your security clearance done and get you like all set up. Um, so then I, I, uh, showed up at the Pentagon, um, like a week later and I was like, this is nuts. <laughs> There's all these soldiers everywhere. There's generals that are like twice my age everywhere. There's helicopters everywhere and stuff. And like this building's massive. I'm intimidated. So I went into my first day, um, and just kind of met with the guy and, and he's like, this is what I want you to work on. Uh, and then also I got my security clearance, which was another process, which is fun. Um, and then. I got connected to the White House in terms of like what the initiatives were. So I'd be at the White House every week. Wow. That's a, that's a fantastic story. I can't imagine, you know, like you said, being at that age, just kind of hustling your way to the Pentagon. I mean, that just doesn't happen, right? That's, that's super unique. Um, I, I don't know how much you can talk about what you did there, but you said you, you know, you were trying to use your engineering background. Is that something that you were, you were working on? Yeah. So we were overseeing the Army Corps of Engineers. Um, and so they have about $8 billion dollars. Um, on the on the civilian side that they spend a year, uh, that's their budget, uh, which is nuts. Um, and then they have another twenty billion dollars on the military side that they spend a year. So it's like almost thirty billion dollars they spend a year, um, taxpayer money. Um, so our job was to oversee the Army Corps, um, and they do a lot of like waterway projects. So it's not, it's not like military, like you actually go and like fight battles, but it's more about like making sure that the in- engineering infrastructure of the U.S. is in a good spot. So it's whether it's waterways, it's hydro dams, um, it's like it's uh, it's turbines for green energy, um, it's all these different things. It's security about nuclear power plants. So so we're modernizing modernizing that whole thing. So we'd have even these different initiatives. So we'd go to the White House and would have a meeting and be like, okay, Obama wants to well, he promised that we're gonna like like spend twenty percent more green energy by X years. Like, shit, how do we do this? So it'd be all the different departments and appointees get together and it's sometimes it'd be your bosses, like Department of Energy would be there, Department of uh, Interior, cabinet officials would be there, and in a small room in the White House, and it would be like, okay, so where where the where the like the workers that have to get this done for cabinet officials? So we had a room of like twenty of us, and it would be like, okay, so our boss is committed to like doing this. How do we get this done? So we'd put together like strategies, and then I'd go back to the actual military and be like, we have to get this done. How do we do this? And we'd put together like like um, uh, memos for the president's sign, and then we would actually execute it down the line across all the different agencies. Wow, 
So you were in the White House, like working on these projects. Yeah. That's very, very cool. How long did you spend doing that? Like uh, how many years were you doing that? So one term, so four years. Okay. And then after that term, is there a reason why why you decided to move on and, and do something else? Yeah. I mean, I think the excitement kind of wore, wore off. Um, I think it was really cool um, to work on it, but the government moves super slow. It's like a gigantic boat. Um, like imagine a large carnival cruise, it doesn't steer very well, mm. but a small speedboat or jet ski turns really well. So um, given that analogy, like you implement something and like five to 10 years later, you see a result of it. Um, that's what happens over and over again. So like, like I saw that there's a lot of waste in the government. I saw that things took forever to get done. Um, and, and I learned a lot from it. I was like, I, I've maximized my learning here. I want to kind of go to the next challenge. Um, so what I did was I was like, you know what, I'm going to, I bought this house during that time, my first house, um, uh, apartment in, in DC. And so I, so I was like, you know what, I can probably sell this and make some good money and start my first company. So that's what I did. I, I got about a hundred thousand dollars that I made from my, from my house that I sold. I took all that C capital and started making my first company, building my first company. And what was that? So that was a failure, but it was, it was an interesting story. So <laughs> what, what I was doing was I was, um, driving a lot, um, I love like old school cars. I bought an old school Porsche and I'd drive a lot and I had my Blackberry or my first iPhone and I'd be using my phone quite a bit um, and almost get in accidents quite often because I was not a very safe driver. I'd be driving too fast. Um, so what I saw in the military was that, you know, fighter jets had head-up displays. Like, why is that not in cars? So what I built was a head-up display for cars that took your phone information like Google Maps and put it onto your, your like road in front of you and transparent display. So I built that prototype, built that technology, um, and then what I quickly realized, you know, building my first business in a hardware company, is that it would cost like twenty million dollars or some ridiculous amount of money to actually build like like high fidelity things that actually survive in a car um, and scalable, like to make enough money. So without like we didn't raise that much money, which was the issue. So we pivoted from um, making a, a piece of hardware to something that's more software based. So. What we did was we built essentially Siri for the car. So we built a voice assistant that um, worked in your car really well, uh, was optimized for the car. So we built a natural language understanding engine, um, which is AI for voice. And so we built something that specifically was trained. We trained our uh, machine learning um, models to understand what people talk about in the car, uh, people, what people want to do in the car. Let's say, for example, getting directions to somewhere. That's a common thing people do, send a text to people. Like we trained our model over and over again to be really good. And was that called Apollo? That was called Apollo, that's right. You know, by this by this time, I moved to San Francisco because I was like told that, you know, you need to move to San Francisco to build a company, to raise money. Um, I was failing at raising money. It was really difficult. Um, with the hardware piece, um, it was, was really difficult. But I made some good connections uh, and I sold it to kind of Jaguar Land Rover, the car companies. So Jaguar Land Rover kind of became our first customer um, to, to integrate our technology into their cars. Um, so they gave, they started kind of giving us money to, to integrate our technology into their cars. Um, and also at the same time, we got some uh, attention from Techstars. And what they say is Techstars is harder to get into than Harvard. Um, but I hustled my way in and we did a pretty good interview um, in Seattle. And then they recommended us to do the New York City kind of program. And Techstars is awesome. Right? I think it's one of the best accelerators out there. And so what did they help you do? Like, what were they helping you find that early product market fit? Were they helping you uh, raise that money? What was that experience like? So I would say that um, Techstars, like, it really depends on the company and the state of the company. So 
um, I think every company is always looking for the product market fit. That's even after Series A, like that's a big thing that you're going after. Um, so it really depends what the company, what state the company is in. Mm-hmm. But they go through like the basic 101 of, of starting a company, uh, raising money, which is a big one, uh, building a team is another one, uh, finding customers, um, to kind of focus on that. Uh, but I would say like, you know, I didn't really like my MD very much in Techstars, um, but I like the ecosystem around Techstars, which is like the mentors over there, they're amazing. Like they're, they have, they're, there's mentors that are super connected and they're all founders um, and they can tell you and teach you about whatever sector you want. Um, so the mentors are great and they also have like ecosystem investors. So Techstars is really good about that. Just like Y Combinator. I think Y Combinator is a little better, but Techstars is up there also. And so at this point, you were selling this product to Jaguar. And what happened next? What was the, the next stage of, of the progression? Yeah, we had some customers who raised a little bit of money. Um, and so uh, we got another customer in Korea um, to bring our voices into Korea. A lot of hustling. Um, but the issue that we saw was like, you know, Amazon started getting into the space. Um, and so with their Alexa product. Mm. Um so that became like competition. On top of that, we saw was, yeah, Jaguar Land Rover gave us an initial check to start um, integrating our technology into their cars. But car companies are super freaking slow. <laughs> this is what Tesla like has, has figured out and can capitalize on. Like to get a piece of software in a car takes six years to do that. And there's a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of red tape. And so as our software was, which was a cloud-based kind of natural language processing engine, um, it wouldn't work in a car, uh, and it'll take six years to do that. And and even then, you once you get it deployed in a car, you make like very tiny little loyalties like on the car like itself. So it's very automotive is like cutthroat and slow. Um, and and Tesla just being able to like be semi fast in terms of like software updates, um, like making an electric car. That's why they're so ahead of the game. Every other car is super like because they're dinosaur companies, right. unfortunately. So what was happening is like we were running out of money because you know it's it's hard to get traction in the space uh, because there's only a few companies that are huge and getting the sales cycle to get into them is like a year plus um, and they don't really kind of give you much of a indication that they're into it or not it's, it's a very slow bureaucratic system so we're losing out in that 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 battlefield and Amazon is getting into that space too um, which they eventually left but or I kind of left or they don't really care about as much. Um, so we had to pivot our company rapidly, um, into different spaces. So we started doing that, but, you know, we didn't see that the voices is in space. We could win, um, in different spaces. Um, like if we did a general purpose engine, like Siri, we're not going to beat Apple because they have billions of dollars that they spend a year on training their models with thousands of engineers. We're not going to win that space. Um, so finding these niche use cases was difficult and making money off that is not a challenge when you're running out of runaway, you just can't do very much. Uh, so we ended up just closing on the company. Um, we did try to sell our assets, but you know, then we have to stay with the company. It just wasn't worth it. So we ended up just kind of sh- shutting that company, but it was a really good lesson learned in terms of like, you know, picking your industry to go after, picking your customers um, and yeah, getting customers. That was the biggest thing I learned from there. So you learned those lessons. You've also learned that hardware is really, really challenging yeah. um, and raising money for hardware is also challenging. Yeah. Um, when was this? What what year was this when you sunsetted the company? Uh, I think it was 2019. 2019. And so not too long after that, obviously the the pandemic 
it and that is when you decided to start Zomo Fit. Well, actually, in between, I did work for a venture in the city. Okay. Okay. Um, so it's kind of more of a nine to five kind of gig. So that was that was interesting. That was cool. Like I learned like we were building apps. We were building apps for large uh, companies, um, and also trying to kind of make our own apps also. Um, so we're making like we made the Hamilton app that has like a, a million monthly active users. Mm. The Hamilton, the Broadway show. Um, we also made Betterment, um, a couple of Google apps also. So we're super connected into the ecosystem. So I've learned a lot in terms of product development, um, uh, software development, and, and I think that kind of um, inspired me to work on this next kind of uh, next thing. Right. And so you were you were working for this company, and then did that pandemic hit while you were working in this company, and then you saw the opportunity, decided to to move on and and, and do uh, ZomoFit. I mean, I, I had the op- this this idea of Zomo in my mind before that, before the pandemic. I thought it would work, and I saw that the trend of of the um, the demand for virtual fitness going up. Um, and I was, and honestly, I was getting a little bit like bored, like in a nine to five job. I don't think I'm built for that. I'm built to like always hustle, otherwise I get bored. Which is, I don't know, great quality or bad quality. I don't know what it is. Um, but but I, I decided to like leave that company and start Zomo Fit. Hey, I hope you're enjoying the show. But before we hear about the team behind Zomo Fit, I thought you might be interested in hearing a few stats about the company. So, the company is currently headquartered in New York City with a fully distributed global team. The creators using ZomaFit have grown 20% month over month since November 2021. ZomaFit has already raised $380,000 since late 2021. And in the most recent fiscal year end, ZomaFit was operating pre-revenue and had a net loss of $10,957. Okay, now let's get back to the episode. I think earlier you mentioned how kind of all came together. You started doing this customer research and building these iterations. At what point did you bring in some, you know, some other people like your team? Can you talk a little bit about that process and, and kind of why you brought them on? Yeah. Um, so what I would suggest any person that's, you know, in tech, in tech software um, is pre-sell your stuff before you build it. Um, if people have the willingness to pay before you build it, that's a good indication. Um, the issue is that people a lot of times build stuff and then no one buys it. Um, that happens often. And so that's the lesson that like I started learning in early on in Zomo. So I kind of tried to pre-sell everything I was doing and have a customer allocated to it and ask them for money before I build it. So the first year or a little bit less than a year, it was all about me trying to figure out how to build this company and, and kind of using my own developer skills, which are pretty bad, to build my first kind of iterations of this and, and test it out and figure out what, what to do. So I was getting some small checks from some investors and micro VCs. Um, to figure this out, investigate this space. And then after I started seeing that there's a company here to build, there's a pool of 370,000 um, uh, like customers, potential customers in terms of the, the creators. And there's also um, like not very much competition. All that competition is kind of legacy. Uh, on top of that, the, the more forward kind of thinking startups, they're working on different kind of aspects of things. So when you bring on your, your co-founders, um, you really have to... Uh, it's just like pitching a VC. You have to really convince them that like no one wants to work on a company that's going to be a zombie. They want to work on something that's going to be huge and they're proud of and their work goes really far. Um, so I had to essentially pitch you know, people in my network to be like, hey, I'm working on this thing. I believe there's going to be some big light outcome from this. It'll help a lot of people. So over, you know, you know I started this process after six months of, or less of starting the, the company. Um, and eventually I started connecting with the right people and clicked with different people. So Jeremy, I clicked with over, over LinkedIn. 
Uh, and we actually have never met in person. We talk on virtual like stuff all the time. It's been great um, uh, meeting him and actually working with him remotely. Like our company is going to be fully remote, and, and I'm happy with that. Whenever you first put that out there, um, you kind of pitched your idea, and then did Jeremy come to you, or did you you reach out to him? And 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 when you did connect, what made you so excited about bringing him on to the team? Yeah, so his background is pretty stellar. What what I like about him is he's more of a practical kind of of a engineer. So he he didn't he actually didn't go to college, which I think was interesting. Um, and uh, he he went through a couple of different startups and large companies uh, to learn development. Um, and he also uh, he was a tech lead of Map My Fitness, um, which sold to Under Armour for hundred fifty million dollars, which is pretty awesome. Um, also, he's worked in like large corporations like Comscore, where he's the director of engineering. Where, where they do like a million call API calls per second. He has the fitness experience. Um, he's got the app experience. Um, he also had the startup experience and and um, and the big company scaling kind of experience. So that got me excited. I was like, this guy has all the the right kind of fit in terms of background, in terms of that stuff. But culturally, is this going to work? What I usually do is kind of a test. Can we work together for a couple of weeks? How is this going to work? Mm-hmm. Um, and I really see how our first fight kind of. Um, First disagreement, first fight kind of happens and, and how we rebound from that. I think that's a good test of a relationship. How do you balance that dynamic? I mean, it is important to be very pragmatic, but it's also important to, you know, kind of push through the walls whenever times get hard. Yeah. And so what's the dynamic like in making sure that you keep moving forward, even if maybe there's some kind of, you know, issue that, that pops up? The way I think in, in life in general is like, it's good to disagree with other people and have different um points of view, because uh, if everyone else is a yes person around you, then you're not going to really um, get very far because your customers are not going to be yes people. They're, they're going to either pay for it or not. Um, and so so disagreements are really good and I encourage it in all the meetings we have, all the talks we have. Um, and I try to remove my ego as much as possible from from things I do, from things I work on relationships. Um, and that's, that's what I learned early from early on too. Like I had a huge ego in terms of like, I want to be the superstar and be the next Steve Jobs with my head up display in a car, which is stupid. Um, <laughs> and then once you go through a bunch of failures, you kind of start removing that ego piece by piece, like an onion. You realize ego is this kind of insecurity that's getting in your way. Um, and I look for those kind of qualities and people that we bring onto the team, that they don't have an ego, that they're straightforward, um, they're willing to learn. Uh, Learning is a big part of it. Um, and when to kind of adapt and pivot. Um, and at the end of the day, they're also fun to kind of work with. Sure. Like I don't want to work with people that are boring and just, you know, they're not fun to work with at all. And can you talk about the other team members um, that you have? Sure. So Prithviraj, um, he's another founder too. Um, so I found him on Upwork. Um, this is not a typical story of like, this was your college roommate kind of guy. Um, I found him on Upwork uh, to do like a short kind of stint in terms of like, um, figuring out uh, different sales pipelines and kind of growth hacking um, and also kind of doing user interviews. And so I really like working with them. So after six months of kind of working with them and interacting with them every day for hours on end, I was like, this guy's awesome. And he works really, really hard. So he works like 15 hours a day, um, just trying to, trying to get this thing working and, and, and getting it to customers. So he's a super hard worker, super resilient. Um, and, and I met him on Upwork, which is crazy, but um, uh, like VCs, if you heard that story, they'd be like, "You're nuts!" Like, why would you hire someone from Upwork or bring on someone from Upwork to be your co-founder? But uh, there's a lot of good people out there all the world that 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 I think could be great co-founders. I think if you limit yourself to just what's around you, you're gonna find 
a small pool of talent. Mm-hmm. Um, with with uh, you know with Raj B in India, like I've extended my net to be the whole world. Um, his his talent level um, and, and his competency is like far beyond what I could have found within my network. Well, I appreciate you giving more insight about the team. Um, I'm curious about you know more information about your company. And so, as you know, you know starting starting a company is super challenging. There's always something that's going wrong. Yeah. And so, what is the hardest challenge that you've faced so far at ZomoFit? And you know, what did you do to to solve it? Yeah, I mean, I think the product market fit is always a hard thing to figure out. Um, and so, if a startup tells you they've figured out product market fit, they're kind of bullshit. it. Um, that's what you're always going for. Um, and product market fit is defined by like Y Combinator is like, you can't keep up with the demand um, of, of customers. If you have way too many customers, you, then you can handle. Um, that's when you kind of realize you have product market fit. So that's always a difficulty. Um, and there's small little things that can kind of mess with your product market fit. So that can be like your onboarding kind of sucks in your app. Um, the way you're finding customers kind of sucks. Um, the way you're messaging to your customers kind of sucks. Like fixing all those different parts, thousand different variables. Um, that's that's what you have to kind of figure out. That's a hard, really hard thing to figure out. And of course, raising money is always really difficult for every founder. Like pe- if people are saying it's an easy thing, they're they're also lying to you. Even Elon Musk to to raise money for Tesla initially, SpaceX had a really difficult time. He had to invest like hundred million dollars of his own money into it. So. Raising money is always, always always difficult, kind of convincing VCs that this is going to be the future. Difficult thing to do, um, but it's a standard thing that every kind of fund goes through. And then also finding that product market fit um, is, is difficult to kind of get to. Sure. So that's the challenge you're facing right now, finding that product market fit and also raising, which is which makes a lot of sense. And so what are some of the things that you're doing to you know solve that? Yeah. So getting a crap ton of data, um, that's what we do. So so we use UX cam for on the mobile side to actually see what customer is doing, where they drop off, or where they have issues. And it's crazy. You can actually see like a screen recording of what they're doing. Um, and then also we use like Hotjar on the website to see what's happening there too. Um, and then we do about like three to five um, user interviews per week, um, like on a call like this, kind of hash out what do you want next, what do you what do you what problems are you running into, and we see a trend line between the the data, the actual data points. And actually, these what they're saying, and we make decisions on like how do we adapt this feature? How do we make this new feature that they really, really need that we're missing? Um, so, crap ton of data is, is analytics is what we kind of really uh, focus on there. And then the iteration process as you learn, right? As you figure out what what's the pain point, fixing it, and then moving on. Yeah, and you you build a, build a small MVP for whatever feature that you think is is it was what they need, and it's like it shouldn't take more than a week to kind of build that new feature. Um, and then if you see that. They're, they're using it, then you have something there that you can kind of build it out. Right. Besides that challenge, like what is something that keeps you up at night that worries you about your business or that you're worried about the market? What, what's something that, you know, keeps nagging you? Yeah. I mean, so I have a newborn kid. She's like eight months old. So she doesn't nag me, but she cries like a lot. So I don't get very much sleep for the last like, I guess, seven months. So that's what keeps me up at night for real. Um, <laughs> uh, but in terms of the business, like, what what you realize after being a third time founder, I'm a third time founder, um, is that like the business is always on fire. There's always fires to kind of put out. Um, you kind of gamify it in your head and make it kind of like leveling up in in a, in a video game. Like you want to get to the next stage and and kind of evolve constantly. Um, so there's always things that are like kind of bothering you. For example, like I don't know, um, like let's say that it's 
why is this customer leaving here? Why are why is why is X happening for for this part of the customer journey? Like why why, why do we not understand this? Um, so there's a lot of decision points in in the company itself, and of course we have a staff of six people, six people that are salaried full time. Um, you need to make sure like doing the accounting part of things. So make sure you have enough money runway, that you're making enough revenue to to cover it, that you have enough money uh, invested to, to actually do that. So there is some stress in terms of like accounting, and I, I hate accounting, and I think most funders do too. Um, so that part is not fun, but it's a, it's a necessary evil um, to actually build what you love. Right, right. I think I have one one final question, and you've you've had a lot of experience founding companies, like you've mentioned. You're a three time founder. Um, you've learned a lot of lessons, and so I think looking back at everything that you've done. Um, what would you say is more important in entrepreneurship? Is it more important to be courageous or intelligent? So I wouldn't say either of those. Um, I, I think courageous is like, I think resilience is really what you need to kind of have. Um, I think you can be a dumb person that's really resilient and it wouldn't be very effective. Um, uh, but if you're like, I think average intelligence are a little bit more, you need the intelligence and the resilience part of it. So what happens is you run into walls and then you use your intelligence to figure out what, why is why are you running into this wall? How do we get around this wall? Um, and that's what you need the intelligence part of it. Courageous is like I think kind of like over, like well, I'm not fighting a war or something like that. I, I don't think I need to be that courageous. Um, I think I just need to be resilient over and over again and just keep thinking, slapped around by customers and getting back up the next day and figuring out how to solve problems. One more thing. I mean, your your purpose of your kind of podcast is to kind of go after talk to companies that are crowdfunding. Um, so. Like the, the one of the reasons we are doing crowdfunding um, is that our software is built for the creators, and creators can be anybody. You're a creator with your podcast, um, and fitness creators are are also awesome too. So part of the reason we're doing this crowdfunding is that we can get our customers to invest in the company also, and and bet on our future because I think that's what's missing with a lot of companies. They don't have that aspect, and it's built into our DNA to have the creators kind of invest and and support our company while we grow. This has been an episode of Seeking Startups. I'm your host, Maxim Davis, and thank you for listening to the whole show. Make sure to subscribe, leave a rating and a review, and share this episode. Once again, if you're interested in investing in this company, you can find a link to their fundraising page in the description below. Before I let you go, if you're a founder who's interested in getting highlighted on the show, email me at maxim at seekingstartups.com. Thank you, and until next time, keep investing in the future.